This is Broadway Bullet, Volume 803, for August 15th, 2017, bringing it together. Don't miss an episode of Broadway Bullet. Subscribe for free at broadwaybullet.com, or look for Broadway Bullet under podcasts in iTunes. In this episode, all four members of the Junkyard Dog production team gathered to discuss how Come From Away came together in time to grab seven Tony nominations this past season. Also, Puff's general manager, Daniel Cooney, and producer David Carpenter talk about all the different hoops they had to jump through to make Puff's the off-Broadway success it has become. Actors Liz Stanton and director Jeremy Williams talk about what needed to happen for the one-woman show, The Woman Who Is Me, to make it to the stage. We also listen to two songs from the composing team, Carner and Gregor. We'll assure you'll be hearing more about them in the future. All right, welcome back to Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we got three great interviews for you this episode, along with some great music, as always. It's a lot of uh, fun and juggling, trying to balance what I do with this podcast, what I do with my writing, and the program that I founded at the University of Providence, which is theater and business arts. But what I do isn't uh, atypical. You need to do a lot and work a lot to stay busy and make a living in the arts. And that's what we teach you. Uh, We don't just teach you the art of being an artist. We teach you the business of being an artist. It's an exciting new program. I hope you check us out. You can find out more information by going to broadwaybullet.com. University of Providence also has a link at their website, uprovidence.edu. The university just made a big name change. We were the University of Great Falls. Now we're the University of Providence. So the website information is still being tracked over. We've got a lot more information on the classes and stuff on Broadway Bullet that'll be filled in on the podcast later. In any case, we'll get on to what you're here for, listing some great interviews, right after a word from our other sponsor. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thanks to the Dramatist Guild Fund for welcoming us to their space for today's podcast. Providing the music hall at DGF for writers to use for free is one of the many ways the Dramatist Guild Fund supports writers. I encourage you to find out more about DGF by visiting their website at www.dgffund.org or connecting with them on Twitter at DGFund. Up close. The Junkyard Dogs are back. They're flying high with seven Tony nominations, including Best Musical from for Come From Away. And uh, those who've been listening to the show often know that Sue Frost has been popping in here and there all along her professional uh, producing career. Uh, Kenny, um, wait, so sorry, Randy Adams was here with us once before, too, as part of the Junkyard teams. But 
With all everything going on, the entire Junkyard Dogs team is here. And in from Seattle, we have Marlene and Kenny Alhadif. Also, so we've got a great thing to talk about the Junkyard Dogs, your process. All four legs of the dog. Mark. All four legs all four of the legs dog. Of the <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, um, first off, I guess we'll start off talking about your, your current thing, Come From Away. And I, I guess this can go um, negative ways, but I'm curious. One thing I love about Junkyard Dogs, besides the fact that I know you very well, Sue, is I love your courage. It seems like I think about everything you do has been an original musical, which um, I think is very risky, or at least is viewed as very risky in this day and age on Broadway. Um, and, but you've had some really good successes. Um, you've also had some stumbling blocks along the way, and I think you have a lot to share for aspiring producers or actors running around. So I guess first is, and I know you're very hands-on in development, right? So I guess the first thing is, what's the story of Come From Away? How did this come to your attention? How did you shepherd it to this wonderful success? Well, we started by, um, we actually knew David and Irene. We had met the authors. We met David and David Hine and Irene Sankoff through a mutual friend who had asked us to meet with them. They had written their first musical, and um, it had been very successful in the NIMP Festival, and they were kind of trying to figure out what its future life was going to be. It had been produced um, uh, by the Mervishes in Toronto, so it was really not something we would have gotten involved with because it was already sort of done, yeah. but they were looking for some advice. We met them, um, we liked them, we, we visited with them, we had breakfast with them when we were in Toronto with our Memphis tour, because they live in Toronto, and that was the day they were going into rehearsal at Sheridan College with their new musical, Come From Away. And uh, we said, that sounds like an interesting idea. Keep us posted. Um, it went through further development at Sheridan and had a, a stint at uh, Goodspeed, my old stomping ground. Uh, but we didn't actually see it. The four of us saw it at the uh, National Alliance for Musical Theater's Festival of New Musicals in 2013. And Kenny has the best story here, so I'm going to turn it over to him. <laughs> well, it was an amazing piece. Uh, they did a 45-minute cut of it, but you could tell that there was something special there, that it was important and that it was unique. And I think we all were thrilled, but my wife Marlene jabbed me and said, get up there and be the first in line. Uh, because at the NAMP Festival, the writers usually come out and stand behind a desk and wait for people to come and give them their CD and their card. And I ran up there, and I was the first in line to tell them how much we loved it. And of course, then our whole team was excited, and uh, then we were able to talk to them uh, on the phone a few times. And uh, it wasn't a surprise that many other producing uh, groups and theaters had contacted them in regards to working with them to get the rights for the show. And uh, we were blessed to be chosen by them. And we were off on an adventure. So when it comes to like a bidding war, so to speak, like that, what do you feel your qualities were that, um, that attracted the writers to going with you guys? Well, I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, we had worked on original musicals before mm -hmm. and we're very hands-on in terms of doing that. And they know that all we do is new musicals. Uh, so I think uh, because we had that relationship with them before, you know, we'd gotten to know them a little bit. And uh, the fact when we talked to them about what it was they thought they still needed and what they wanted to do, and then what we thought 
should happen with it because there was no, there was no easy you know way on this one. You know, you look at the title, didn't mean anything. It was going to be an ensemble cast, so there were going to be no stars, and people were going to call it the 9-11 musical. So you had to look at all of those things. And to be honest, we didn't know if it was a Broadway show even when we first took it on. We had no idea. And so, I mean, we had to be very upfront with them and say, you know, we think there's a great show here, and we think there's a lot uh, that it's going to have a huge life no matter what it is. We just don't know if it's a Broadway show. So we talked to them about what we thought might be the next steps with it, and you know, they decided that that was the way they wanted to go. David and Irene are very thorough. They're, they're very respectful. They they met with every single person who expressed interest in the show. Um, <clears throat> and when we we did take it on, they asked if we would make sure that we met again with all the folks who had expressed interest, whether it was potential uh, producing partners or uh, regional theaters that were interested. And um, so, and I think it was having that kind of conversation, the fact we were open to that, that we, we were completely open to um, to going down a path that everybody felt uh, good about. And, um, you know, we believe, and we did this on Memphis, we've done this with all of our shows, you have to be so upfront and straightforward with your creative team right from the beginning and, and make sure everybody's on the same page. Because if you're not, you will come to grief. You just will. So it was important to us that everybody wanted the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So what was the path then from 2013 NAMPS uh, to getting to Broadway? Well, we had the first reading in, in Seattle, and it was a co-pro with La Jolla, and the Fifth Avenue and the Seattle Rep were all part of that process. Um, very exciting to start there. When we started, it was a two-act. It had an intermission, and when Chris was in Seattle, he looked at the piece and got back home when we started and said, I think we should try this. And everybody that was there never had a rest <laughs> that actually was experiencing it. And so we did it in La Jolla in one act and it, it, it seemed to be smoother and it was very interesting how it unfolded. I think in Seattle, just in the reading, and we ended up with uh, uh, a reading at the end of a couple weeks of work uh, and invited 70, 80 people. But they were still on book and they were on stands and there was a little bit of blocking. But um, honestly, immediately when you could feel what was going on in the room with that audience, you, you knew that there was something magical. And that didn't mean it was going to end up on Broadway. But you, you, I had one of our, actually, the person who introduced Marlene and I, my, one of my best friends was there. And he's not an outwardly emotional person. He was laughing and he was crying. And I hadn't seen, I'd never seen that in him in a, in a theatrical performance. And you just knew there was something very special happening with this show. Actually, his wife was concerned about him because she had never seen him. <laughs> and yeah. he, he had no self-control. And, you know, she'd live with him for 45 years. So, yeah, it was very yeah. unique. Was this a difficult show to do a reading for? I mean, there's so much unison stuff. No, so you know what's so interesting, Michael, is mm -hmm. when we first saw it at NAMPT, it was uh, at Music Stands. Mm -hmm. And because it is, you know, directed, so much of it is directed yeah. dress, it really lends itself to Music Stands. So part of what we wanted to do that first, and I think it was, a, ultimately it was three weeks we spent in Seattle yes. in the summer of 2014, 
was it, it, twofold. We wanted to make sure that the creative team all was all on the same page because Chris Ashley came in new with us after Nant, Kelly Devine, Ian Eisendraft. Uh, but we also wanted to explore how the show would ultimately move on a stage yeah. because it was so perfectly suited to music stage, yeah. you know? It was easy, So yeah. we did, we, we staged, choreographed, Kelly and Chris staged and choreographed a couple of numbers, and as Kenny said, the rest of it was done sort of on book at stands, but just to explore the sort of vocabulary of movement. And some of the stuff that they did is still in the show, mm-hmm. that yeah. they did in that early development. Uh, is still in the show. So, so, and so that exploration, and then we had a, a proper rehearsal period in La Jolla. I think we were in the studio for five weeks, mm-hmm. which was, uh, and the actors talk about this a lot. They started in that room, and it was a room full of rehearsal props. Stuff. And through the course of those five weeks, they just kept paring it away. No, we don't need that. No, we don't need that. Too much. What we need are 12 chairs, two tables, and a fantastic story. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, uh, and then on the opening performance in La Jolla, you got that same feeling immediately uh, during and after the performance by the audience, that there was something that had happened with them that was more than entertainment, that they were engaged and in the DNA of what was happening with you. And uh, you know, we were blessed uh, to have Chris Ashley leaving the team and doing it in La Jolla and then Put it Seattle to the Seattle Rep, which is an 800-seat theater that's a fabulous theater that, that had not done an original musical on its stage in probably 20-some years. It's basically a straight play theater. So the early audiences for it in Seattle were almost completely non-musical theater audiences, and they received it immediately. And I think they did three extensions in Seattle uh, before we went went on to uh, Washington, D.C. And the, you know, uh, uh, Marlene and I have been so blessed to be partners with Randy and Sue for 10 years now. Um, They started the company, uh, and a few months later, we were blessed to to join them. And, you know, I think that their amazing experience in this business and the regional experience they had, the development experience both of them had, coming from amazing institutions that embrace new work to the degree that had them decide when they wanted to start this Broadway company, that we're going to actually say in our mission that we do new works. That's actually what we do do. Uh, and that's, I think, what motivated them. And that's what motivated us to join them, because it's thrilling. But of course it's risky. Really, it's really risky. And uh, so the idea of taking it around the country and, and letting it kind of earn its energy, uh, I think, has been part of its success as it has grown artistically and kind of in the lexicon of theater and musical theater in the country. One thing I loved about the show seeing it last night is at the same time as I could immediately tell its theatrical heritage and influences, <laughs> it felt like something completely new. On stage, I think it's important for us to remember that new doesn't have to be completely off the wall. I mean, in concept, this is a storyteller play, very similar to like, you know, a lot of what like you know high schools do at competitions or the way a lot of plays deal with issue, you know, stories, the narrators or storytellers. But I don't think I've seen this format really ever. You know, a friend of mine goes, I hear it's like, you know, um, the Laramie Project, the musical. So, I mean, the history, the heritage is there, but it, as a musical, moving all together, I feel it, it moves the story so fast, 
you know, it, it never lets it stall. Um, well, it acts like a play, yeah. to be honest. It acts like a play for yeah. the most part. And, 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 and as, as almost through sung, and I mean, well, not through sung, really. It's in and out. It, but it's, it's through it's composed. Through, through composed. Yeah, like, there's like music everywhere. It feels kind of like a play with music. Yes. Rather than a musical, even though there's so More much, music than most more musicals. Music. Yeah. And another thing, as you know, a lot of times when you kind of break that wall with the narrative straight at the audience, sometimes it's used as a device to kind of make up for not being able to get the interaction and the storytelling that you really want to earn between the characters. I think we feel, and the audiences are saying to us, that in this case, it's organic and authentic to have that switch between interaction between the actors and talking to the audience because it, it just seems more it seems so natural. It's part of the storytelling, you know, and David and Irene, uh, originally, you mentioned the Laramie Project, I think originally Irene in particular <coughs> felt that that was kind of the form it was going to take, and then when they went to uh, Gander for the 10th anniversary commemorative ceremony, which is where they gathered all their interviews, they had a there was a a, a concert yeah the night a celebratory before. concert mm -hmm. and she said just being in the room with that music and watching everybody in the room whether it was a politician or a plain person or a local just start to dance and just start, start to, to celebrate yeah. she's like oh my gosh this has to be a musical you can't tell a story about Newfoundland without having music in yeah. it because it's in their DNA she was um, they talked about being inspired by Peter and the Starcatcher. Because of that, the way that storytelling happens, you sort of pull something from nothing and make something out of it. They have Irene is steeped in like traditional musical theater history. David is a singer songwriter from a totally different kind of world. So it's fun the way they mash it up together. Yeah. So at this point, how hard has it been raising? You say we're we're at, now you've done it in Seattle, uh, moving on. How difficult has Fundraising bin for these guys. <laughs> oh, guys. <laughs> at this point, like, what has the budget been so far at this point, and how much is yet to come? Um, the, well, the, the the capitalization for Broadway, basically, once we once the show opened in La Jolla, and we realized that it, it was connecting with audiences the way it was, we said, mm -hmm. okay, we have to take this seriously. We do believe this can reach eight to 12,000 people a week, which is what you have to believe when you're doing a Broadway show, because that's what you got. No subscription, no member base, that's what you have to do. So when then we started to put that path together. Our general manager, Carl Passberg, and the folks at Alchemy, we said, start to put a budget together because we think this is gonna go. Start to, uh, uh, and, then we, and then people started to come to us. I mean, essentially, Michael, I, I, we've, we've done several shows. We have never raised money as quickly as this, mm -hmm. because people saw the show and responded to it and wanted to be part of it. And and essentially, we had those big chunks of money uh, committed pretty much before we left La Jolla, in terms of people who wanted to be part of it. And by the end of Did Seattle, you go out to, to fundraise before La Jolla? No. So well, you just, we, Michael, we had, a list, the, we had a list of people we were going to invite to come out to we, see the show. We never we sent never it. invited them. We never sent it, because we didn't ultimately want to invite people that we would then have to disappoint. The show was capitalized at twelve million dollars, and that money was committed pretty much before we left La Jolla. Yeah, but we had to raise a little that, front money. Yeah, we uh, did. But, yeah, and that's a lot. Yeah, the front money is what I'm wondering. Right, and it's really that's what Seattle did for us because many the of the folks in Seattle uh, really gave us that original money uh, to make that happen, yeah, uh, had, which was about a million dollars, I think. 
Yeah. And we had a couple of folks from Seattle who were really passionate mm -hmm. about it from the reading and kind of helped champion us that early money. Yeah. Uh, but it was, you know, it was an amazing experience, a humbling experience and a unique experience to have people come to you and say, I'd like to put $100,000 in the show and have to tell you, tell them that, <laughs> that you were full and to, you know, to appreciate their enthusiasm and, and try to stay connected to them at the same time. And this, and so fast. I mean, we literally were fully capitalized, you know, by the time, fully capitalized by before we left Seattle, uh, which was very unique. It's a nice experience to have because it hasn't, the truth is, it hasn't always been that easy. <laughs> no, although we could, and it will probably yeah. never be, be that, that easy. Right. Yeah. Right. In fact, Memphis was twelve million dollars. Mm -hmm. Also, so we looked at that two, those two examples, and it, it was a very different very story. Very different experience. Yeah. Well, and you know, to be fair, Memphis was our first venture on Broadway. We mm -hmm. didn't have any kind of a track record, mm -hmm. and it was just a different kind of, uh, a different kind of experience. We. We ended up doing very similar things with Memphis that we did with Come From Away. It just happened faster with Come From Away, which is the people who are in the show are by and large people who are absolutely saw it, fell in love with it, completely passionate about it. And and that's <coughs> great to have a team like that because everybody wants the same thing. Now, um, so then at that point, since you have the capitalization, is is everything pretty smooth then moving it along your plans, or do what kind of hiccups still happen even when you've got like the funds in place? Well, you know, I mean, the biggest challenge is always the theater here in New York. I mean, the real estate here is the hardest part of all of it. Uh, and so, I mean, <laughs> we sort of forged on, and you know, we were lucky. Uh, that uh, Bob Wankel and Desi Moynihan from the Schubert's had come out. They were there opening night in La Jolla. So they certainly knew about the show, it was on their radar. And we, you know, kept in touch with them, trying to let them know when we thought we were going to come in and need a theater. Uh, and then we put the rest of the path together in between. Scheduling is always a challenge. I think it's one of the most challenging things about producing. Um, we, once we knew we were going to make that leap when we were in La Jolla, we thought about the path that we needed to take. And we knew we wanted to go to Washington, D.C. because we wanted to go to a city directly impacted by the events of 9-11 before we got to New York. And we also knew we wanted to go to Toronto because that's David and Irene's home. Uh, it's a Canadian story. We didn't want, we wanted to, them to be part of the journey and not, oh, let's just open the tour there, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> but then the most exciting and wonderful thing that happened to us <laughs> is we got to go to Gander, Newfoundland mm -hmm. and do a concert, two, two benefit concerts of the show at music stands for 5,000 Newfoundlanders. <laughs> and we did that in between D.C. and Toronto. Yeah. And that's because the mayor of Newfoundland, Claude Elliott, came out to see the show in Seattle. The Canadian consulate invited him out. And he said, we have to take this to Gander. And he went back home and he... Yeah, he just he figured out a date. Figured out a date that would work when they didn't have hockey, you know. <laughs> and, that worked uh, with us. And then we said we're going to do it, and everybody said you are nuts. You are. <laughs> there's no no. How are you going to do that? And we're like we're doing it. We're doing it. And um, about 120 of us descended on Gander, Newfoundland for a weekend. Yeah, they're used to a bigger crowd. They're used to a bigger crowd. And uh, you know it was so funny because we sent our advance, our production manager, and our sound designer up early, and they're like. 
Um, you, you know it's a hockey rink. And we're like, yeah, we know it's a hockey yeah, rink. We know. You know we're going to need this and this. And I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. You just got to deal with what they got. You know, you got to deal with what they it's got. An it's island. a rock in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> we're not sending sound equipment there in a boat, you know. But uh, there was a great shop in St. John's that had everything. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, professionally, I, I think, that complete total highlight yeah. of my career. It's I crazy. Agree. You know, so. All right. Well, congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. In what I'm sure is a very, very busy and chaotic time of year for you as you gear up for the award ceremony for stopping by and, and talking so candidly about We the haven't process. spent this much time on a couch in weeks. I love the drama. It's very comfortable. Very nice. Thanks, Mike. Great. Thanks. Thank now, the Junkyard Dogs had a whole lot more to say. And if you're interested in Broadway theater producing, you want to hear that. So we try to keep this episode where you can hear a little bit of everything, kind of like a magazine format or what like This American Life does. But we know some of you want more. So almost all of our interviews, we have a full uncut interview. If you go to broadwaybullet.com and look under this episode, you'll find those other episodes available. They're also in your podcast feed. So check that out. Junkyard Dogs, a lot more to say. Thanks again, Sue Frost, for, gosh, you've been doing interviews with me and lightning on your career since we first started very first season so that's great you meet a lot of people in this business early on and listening room we've got some music this episode from the duo sam carner and Derek gregor among playbill.com's 12 contemporary musical theater songwriters you should know they've had a lot of musicals they've had unlocked they've had island song they write a lot of great stuff. They have tons of songs, especially if you're looking for good audition and pieces at newmusicaltheater.com um, that you can pick up, including this following song that we're going to play, which is sung by Titus Burgess. This is off uh, Carner and Gregor's album that's available on iTunes. So check that out. Check out this great song, Vice to a Young Firefly, and uh, have a lot of fun. Out in the meadow one in blade of grass sat a young firefly scared of emitting his light for fear he would die his mother had warned him that badgers and bears all will be drawn to your spark they'll love it but not know quite why and they'll make you their mark a cricket who fiddled nearby Saw him there waiting and said, Brother, how can you hide how you're like deep inside when you look so divine? So shy, firefly, into the darkness, never let them steal your dance. Be a guide till the morning, and fill this black expanse.
so flick and the firefly lit up his tail he flew up and sent out a flare the other scared firefly saw it and started to dare so shine firefly into the darkness never let them steal your dance be our guide till the morning and fill this black expanse just be the light that we've been waiting for and we'll make music till you're flashing soaring flight don't deny that you're bright don't be shy come on fire Badgers and bears came out as if in a trance. Seeing the fireflies twirling, they joined in the dance. Yes, they all knew when tomorrow came round, they do as all predators ought. But in this new galaxy's light, tonight they forgot. The truth is, we're all fireflies. All love's waiting our life for a sign, forgetting that we are the stars that have to align. If you send out a spark, you'll be part of a dazzling design. So shine, fireflies, into the darkness never let them steal your dance if you'll shine till the morning and we That song, Advice to a Young Firefly, is for sale. Uh, the sheet music at newmusicaltheater.com. They also have different transpositions for male voice and female voice. So check it out. Again, Sam Carner and Derek Greger. We're going to hear another song from them, sung by Jeremy Jordan, a little bit later in the program. Breaking the Business. All right, I am sitting here with somebody who's slowly becoming a regular guest, I can tell, <laughs> Daniel Cuny and David Carpenter. Uh, Daniel was with us before talking about his work as a general manager, but now he and David are here to talk to us about putting on Puffs as producers, Puffs Off-Broadway, 
a place where no man dares to tread, except <laughs> for these two. <laughs> How are you guys doing? We're great. Great. Michael, thank you. Great to be back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> So, first off, I guess, how did Puffs come about or come to your attention, or how did you guys get involved producing Puffs? Sure. So, in the in the winter of 2015, my business partner, John Pinkard, who, are, who we run our production company together, went down and saw the first performances of it at the People's Improv Theater downtown, uh, at, the, at the pit. And he called me. It was over Christmas break, and, and he called me, and he said, you've got to get down and see this thing. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm not, it's Christmas. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going anywhere for the moment. He's like, well, we've got to option it right <laughs> now. And I said, but I haven't seen it. He said, it doesn't matter. This is, this is, this is the thing. And so we, we optioned, we did, we did a deal very quickly, a very simple mm -hmm. deal very quickly. We optioned it in the first week of January, the day before their New York Times review came out for that pit production. And then mm -hmm. we had a thing all of a sudden, <laughs> right? Um, and we, we loved the show. We thought that there was definitely some things that, that the creative team might want to explore more. And so we took the show down to the University of Florida at Gainesville in about this time last year. And we set the show with students, but bringing our designers from New York down. Because we have a partnership with the University of Gainesville where they do a workshop with us every year for a new project that we're working on. And we, and we did that with the intention of coming into the Electra in the fall. And that's what we spent the summer doing. We started putting together the production for the Electra. And then we opened in started previews in late September 2016. All right, and then how did you get involved with this? Daniel? Yeah, so and I'll just clarify really quickly. So I'm not uh, David's producing partner. Oh, okay, I'm okay. general manager. Okay, okay, okay. you're general manager for David. This thing yeah, um, but you still have s difficult challenges, I'm sure. Dealing oh, with for sure. I mean, you know, yeah. this, oh, yeah. the yeah. the challenge of producing any show yeah. is always the general manager and the producer working yeah. very closely together. Um, but I think what's interesting is that with this show, we've really been able to. You know, everyone says Off-Broadway is dead, and it's so hard to make Off-Broadway work, and I feel like we've hit upon something that seems to be working. Um, yeah, and John, and John and I had that, I mean, when we optioned, we optioned the show without knowing where we were going to go with it. We just loved the show so much, and we knew it could work in a commercial arena, but we didn't know how. And so that's what we spent last summer doing, which is we... we um, we spent the summer saying, all right, what are all of the problems with commercial off-Broadway as they exist right now? That what horn bleep was, he <laughs> was just doing an incredible string of swear words you wouldn't believe. <laughs> no, they, I think we got what you're saying, the uh, horn behind it. But. Um, yeah, so we spent, we spent last summer going through all the problems and figuring out how we could solve some of those problems um, in order to make the show successful. And... And, you know, we've been running now almost eight months, so I'm going to say, yeah, we kind of <laughs> did, right? Um, and, 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 but then, but, and it was twofold. It was, it was bringing the show in, uh, and, and again, Daniel and I worked very closely together on all of this, but it was bringing the show in, but more importantly, it was how do you run the show? And how do you, how do you run the show, and how do you get to seven and a half months, which is, which mm -hmm. I, I personally feel is, is the more critical question in all of it, because you're, you're, the weekly running and the operations and the, and the expense of the show is what you live and die by, right? It's not necessarily the capitalization. Mm -hmm. um, um, it's about how do you craft something that can run efficiently every week. Now, I was talking with Langston Belton about this, and it appears that this is a large cast show for yeah. Broadway. Yeah. We have 11 in the cast, um, which we opened with. Okay, that's what he, I, I thought yep. he was lying. We have, <laughs> we have two... Um, permanent understudies, a male and a female understudy, and then we now also have four on-call swings, right? That people that we can that we can call in saying, all right, we need coverage during this weekend, or this person's going out, can you get to the theater? So that so that we're able to 
you know, keep a fairly low running cost, but constantly keeping people trained in who know how to do the show. I, I've studied playwriting, uh-huh. and um, I know we're all told the same general wisdom. Don't write a play with more than five people. Why is that five people rule there, and how have you been able to make it work for 11? Because I, as a playwright, want to know how I can explore worlds with more than five people in it. I think <laughs> what makes Puffs somewhat unique is that it came with a group of young act- young-ish actors mm-hmm. who were already attached to the project and had an affinity with the project and were not yet at a level in their careers where they were going to need a lot of money to do the piece. Uh, frankly, everyone involved in the show was early enough in their careers that I'll, I'll stop short of saying it's a passion project, mm-hmm. but certainly no one's getting rich doing puffs. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's advancing every everyone involved in the show is taking a leap of faith that it's advancing their career in some way. Especially now that we can say, "All right, we're the show that's run eight months." Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, to, with the with the five person rule, you know it. You know, how does that serve the art, right? I know, and that's right. what, exactly, and that is right. why I'm saying it's so frustrating. But, but and so, and so, if the if the art is good enough, which which John and I's commercial producers said, yeah, no, this is really good. And of course, we certainly asked the question of, well, is there any way we can reduce the number of tracks? And Matt was like, no, this is this is what it is. Because well, of course, we're going to ask that question, yeah. right? But but because it's our job and it's our responsibility to. But you know. If we really wanted to do it, we really wanted to produce it, then we had to figure out the financial model and make a case for it in order to work, right? Because Matt wrote a great play. And so, and so it was incumbent upon us then to actually try and figure it out. And I think that we benefited from the fact that we walked into the play. No one walked into seeing the show saying, oh, my God, it's got 11. It's unproducible. Because that's not the attitude that we have. We don't think that... We don't, we're not going to take that point of view of saying, well, you have 11 people in the cast. It's not, you can't produce this show. It's like, then why are you doing this? If you're not interested in solving problems, which is what the funnest part of my job actually is, is solving problems every day long, right? Or every day. If you're not interested in solving problems and you shouldn't be doing this, you should be doing something easier. Because this is really hard, right? This is really, really difficult. Daniel knows. It's, 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 it's never easy in any way, shape, or form. But, like, that's not why we do this. And like Daniel said, none of us are getting rich off of it, but we're really having a, we're having a great time producing the show. And I tell people very frequently, I wake up every day and excited to produce the show, every day. Like, it, like no matter what is going on, like I'm never not excited to work on Puffs. So, what were your challenges getting it into the theater? Then, at the point once you optioned it, you know, from option to stage, the budget. Yeah, the budget. Yeah, the budget. You know, I mean, so many off-Broadway shows are just having a tough time sustaining themselves right now. So how do you create a business plan that's actually going to work? Um, and again, you know, we were lucky enough that the play came with a lot of talent already. I'm also guessing that the fact that it you know, takes advantage of a certain rabid fan base helps because I would think ultimately that marketing for an off-Broadway show costs almost as much as marketing for a Broadway show, but you don't have the same... You know. Well, we, so we have some we have some um, uh, built-in strategic advantages, which is yeah. also what made this work. I can't just say yeah. it's all smart producing and smart general yeah. managing. That's that's not entirely the case. Although I'd love to take credit for it, but it's not. Yeah. Um, 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 so some of the advantages that we had is that the show ran every week at the Pit, right? Once or twice a week at uh, downtown for eight months before we moved it to Off Broadway. Mm-hmm. 
So during that eight-month period, where we actually were technically not the producers, we were on the option, mm-hmm. but the original producers, um, uh, Colin Waite and Stephen Stout, who, who had produced it down the pit, they kept running the, the production of the pit, which gave us an advantage in that we had a branded content going into our next run at the mm-hmm. Electra, yeah, right? Okay. So there was already a fan base. There was already connections that had been made into the world. There were already things that were already going for it so that we didn't actually start the Electra cold, right? Like yeah. we had relationships within the Potter community that allowed us to continue to get the word out. I, I, and so when, you're, when we're talking about the, the budget between Off-Broadway and Broadway, mm-hmm. I think that's a slightly misnomer when we yeah. talk about advertising costs because really what the hardest thing is about Off-Broadway versus Broadway is that it's the number of people who are seeing your show a night, yeah. right? So it, because the only <coughs> thing that really actually sells tickets, I can, I can spend tons and tons of advertising yeah. on a show, but if people don't like the show, they're not going to and, and they're not gonna spread word of mouth, people aren't going to buy tickets. Mm-hmm. So actually the challenge that exists at Broadway isn't necessarily the advertising budgets, although that it certainly doesn't help that we run on a smaller scale. It's that as opposed to having 800, 1,000, 2,000 people a night, eight times a week going to see your show, you know, and then telling all their friends about it, that gets a very widely amplified message, right? When you're working on the off-Broadway level <coughs> with us, we had 150 mm. people a night only three times a week when we started. So we had 300 people a night go out and tell their friends to go see the show, right? It takes much longer to build that momentum than you would when you're on Broadway necessarily in order just to simply get the word out. And so one of the things that we did when we designed the show is, you know, the the the... The, the axiom is, is that you need six months to build an audience on Broadway, mm-hmm. uh, off-Broadway, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we went into it with that attitude of saying, all right, how can we last for six months? Like, how can we do this? What do we need to do to last six months in order we have critical, uh, until we have critical mass? The show took off so well in the beginning days that um, we hit that moment after three months. So that's when we knew we had something that was really working, right? Because even during previews, we were, we were losing money because that's just the nature of previews, right? Like, and in our, our early months... There, there was no, we still didn't know. And then at, by the time we hit the Christmas holidays of last year, we were like, oh my God, this is, this is really working. And we're going to be able to keep running. And I think the other thing yeah. that we've done or tried to manage really carefully is how we're spending money on advertising. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a Broadway musical, you're spending, especially during Tony season, $150,000 a week to advertise your show. Well, that's many multiples of what it costs us total to run a show. So we can never compete with $150,000 a week. So we have to be really strategic with five, seven, or maybe $10,000 a week. So one of the things that we've done is, you know, mostly we're online, but that every we're always um, analyzing different opportunities that are coming to us. So the ad agency will present us different options and a lot of the times we say no, and I think we've been very good about yeah. saying no, say no a lot. more than saying yes, but every now and then the right opportunity comes along to spend money, and we say, oh, you know, that's actually, this is the right moment for that. Do you mind telling me what, what you felt were some of those right opportunities? Some for of the, sure. I mean, I the think, one we just did. Yeah, so yeah. We're, right now on the streets of, or the, in the subway stations around New York City, we have a subway buy, a one-sheet subway buy, and it's an opportunity that came to us at various points in the show's life. And we just felt, you know, we're going into the summer months. We've had a really, really strong uh, spring. This is going to be a good opportunity to reach the people who are fans of this universe already, who live in the New York area, who may not have heard about the show just yet. So we were very... Or if they've heard about the show, they haven't made the decision to buy. Exactly. Because right? we have a, a huge amount of brand awareness in, in, in New York, and we're doing really actually quite well with it. But we're trying to get to that audience member, to that, that, to that consumer 
who's like, yeah, no, I've heard of that, and my friend said a good thing. And like, like, what's that thing that we need to say? We're like, oh, right, I'm going to come see it this weekend. And that's, that's, that's part of what the subway buyer is trying to accomplish right now is like, oh, right, no, I need, right, I, I thought I was going to go see this thing, and I keep putting it off. Now this is a daily reminder because I walk yeah, past it every day yeah. in the subway that I got to go see yeah. this thing. But we also do something else which is really critically important to the success of the show, which is that we are very heavily engaged within the fandom, right? So, so. Yeah, I was figuring social media is. Probably a big part of it. Can't this. tell you how many people talk to me and say how many uh, the, the ads for the show follow them around on Facebook constantly. Like we're we're mm-hmm. we're hitting a, we're hitting a target. But it's more than that. It's really like like person person engagement. So like last weekend, I've lost I've lost track. But like last weekend, there's this event that happens in um, across the country uh, called PotterCon, right? And this and this woman puts on this this party. Basically, it's 21 and up, but puts on this party, and it happened. It's happened in Baltimore. It's happened in D.C. It's happened, I just did Boston and Philly this weekend, but I literally go and I get a table and I give the event organized free tickets to come and see the show, I mean, for them to raffle off. We host a trivia, we host something in, you know, involving the world, and we sit there and we talk to every single person who walks through those doors. And every time we do one of those things, our sales spike, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what our fans want and need. They need that personal interaction. Like, the, the digital advertising on Facebook, the subway buys can only do so much we find where we where we really hit that moment of true success is when we can actually put ourselves in front of a fan and say you got to you got to come see the show right and our word of mouth is fantastic like there's no question about that but like with our limited budget like we have to physically put ourselves at every opportunity we can get in front of the effect of the grassroots campaign on the show can't be overstated no. um, and you know i will also say if you are a producer and you're contemplating producing off broadway I think you have to be willing to do what David does, which is get on a bus and travel to different cities and Mm -hmm. promote this show. Again, you know, most off-Broadway shows are not going to be able to afford an email blast. Mm -hmm. You know, those are six or seven thousand dollars. But you can get in the car and for a few hundred dollars put yourself up at a choice hotel and find people nearby who might want to come and buy a ticket. But that grassroots effort is essential. And 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 the great thing about it is that. I love doing it because the fans are awesome, right? Like, you know, we live in this world, in, in especially in New York theater. Daniel and I have been doing this for, for about the same amount of time, almost nearly 20 years, I think we can start saying, right? Mm. Nearly 20 years. And, you know, we live in this, we live in this, in this theater bubble, in this Broadway bubble um, within New York, where you're surrounded by people who are so passionate about theater. And that's what keeps us going so often and keeps us, you know, keeps us engaged in, in working in the industry. It's so gratifying when you walk into another world where people are just as equally passionate and you can bridge that gap to say, I love theater, you love Potter, come over to my world for a minute and see what we can do over here. And how Potter theater, Potter yeah. theater, yeah. yeah. And it's great. But, but like the passion that, yeah. the, that they feel for their brand is, is extreme. And so it's great being around them because I'm doing something that's celebrating them. And that's like a really successful um, uh, interaction with your consumer is like, is if, if like... You're you're just we're totally serving their needs and we're making them happy and we're putting on a good show and they're really enjoying it. So it makes those experiences a lot of fun for me. All right, well, uh, David Carpenter, Daniel Cuny, thank you so much for stopping by. I uh, wish you the best of luck pushing this all forward. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> on the boards. All right, I am sitting here with Liz Stanton and Jeremy Williams who are uh, acting, Liz is acting, Jeremy's directing in The Woman Who Was Me, and they're also big-time uh, participators in Convergences, 
uh, group, which is producing this show, but uh, also ongoing, does a lot of other stuff. How are you guys doing? Really good. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much for having us here today. Yeah, I'm so glad you could make it. So uh, there's a lot of stuff I'd like to talk about. I definitely want to talk about convergences and your focus on you know creating collaborative work in New York City. And you've been around nine years, you said? We did. We founded yeah. in, in actually in Boulder, Colorado in 2008. <laughs> So we'll let our listeners hang on a moment for Absolutely. that information about what you guys do there. Sure. But for first, let's talk about the show you're doing right now. Okay. Which is The Woman That Was Me. The Woman Who Was Me. The Woman Who Was Me. Mm-hmm. Get very careful of those prepositions. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the, the show that you're doing. So the show is a play for one woman, and I'm playing Okay, her. well, yeah. The character's name is Lainey, <laughs> and she's a woman in her middle age. She's married. She has a child, and... Her career is, uh, mm, she's she's searching. She's on a search. So she's a writer, but she can't write right now. And uh, her connection to her son is distant. She's finding herself losing her losing track of herself. And her her marriage is not fulfilling. She's kissed by a stranger, <laughs> and her life spins into a whole new sense of herself. Kissed by a stranger. Sounds like a great title for something. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. And, uh, yeah, so she rediscovers uh, her own sensuality that maybe was a bit latent. And um, she goes on a a journey exploring many different aspects of herself as as a writer, as a creator, and she... Her language, she's talking to the audience in one, in, in one section and then bursts into, like, poetic, visual yumminess in the next. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a journey uh, that is quite identifiable, I think, to many people. I am in my middle age. <laughs> um, and I think that this, this wanting more, what's next... Even when I'm feeling settled, now what? Is a, it's, she asks big questions. What fills the immense gap between desire and reason? So desire, reason, what, wait a minute. And so there's this just this hunger for more. And, uh, and it's a, quite a beautiful journey. So, uh, so you're the directing this show, this one woman show. Do you, have you directed a lot of one person shows? Um, a few, a few over the past couple of years. The the first one person show I ever, I directed, I also <coughs> created, which was about the life of Harriet Tubman, which was a woman who worked primarily on her own. And so, you know, there's um, a lot of my career has been about collaborative and ensemble work. Yeah. But then I keep getting attracted to these stories about people who are finding themselves either actually alone or feeling alone. And and the theater is such a beautiful way to express that story within a group. You know, that the, that the one person telling a, a singular story of being alone and this desire to connect with a room full of other people, it, it, it makes that transformation. The, it, we can see that that change is possible. We don't have to be alone. Uh, and so I love, I've, I've really fallen in love with the, the solo play or mm-hmm. solo performer uh, form of telling telling stories in the past couple of years. Have you have you done solo plays before? I I wrote one play as a an autobiographical play. I did that in graduate school, and I thought I don't want to do that again. <laughs> I'm not interested in writing my own uh, one person show. But 
this play was written by a playwright for yeah. one person. So, yeah. So what what are the what are the physical demand differences between doing a one person show versus doing a uh, well, another show? Yeah, that's a, that's never a gets great a question. Break. <laughs> I don't I don't get a break. It's a seventy five minute piece, and uh, it goes from image to image. You know, so I'm I'm not the only person on stage. Let's say yeah. in the sense that there are that I talk about other people. There are images that I'm working with, but um, it's all me. You know, uh, it is. It does take some stamina, and of course, people are often say, "How do you memorize all those lines?" Yeah. You know, that's the least of yeah. it, really. But it is a huge hurdle. You must do that first, yeah. and then the work begins. Yeah, one thing that surprised me in in graduate school, I took a class in solo performance, and like the whole first, you know, like a third of the class, he spent really just on physical exercises in a. In a three-hour class, we were just doing loud walking and slowly physically. I mean, it was like worse than like, you know, it was worse than any like gym class <laughs> I ever gone. He's like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta be prepared to. You know, we train yeah. really hard. You know, they um, not only did a, a physical perform. You're right, the solo performer has to have that stamina. But the way that Liz and I collaborate is through physical storytelling, yeah. in as much as it is through the the text itself, and yeah. so. There's um there's a lot of movement and and physical language in the show, you know. She says she plays she speaks for many different people. So there's there's other character voices within the piece and taking those on and embodying them and letting the audience really experience those different perspectives, the different voices in the room, but still coming from one person is quite demanding. And so um, when we first started working on this show, we were really investigating it. Uh, and asking some questions through our our physical work together um, and image work and and really um, exploring like where does desire live in the body where does you know where 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 are these questions in her if she can't write is it because she's stuck in her head is she thinking about things is she stuck in her head well when is she sitting is she working is she is she stuck in her stomach is there a fear keeping her from something you know where where is it and so we did a lot of we've done a lot of physical exploration of mining. Um, this character's inner inner experience, yeah, and and embodying the poetic language mm -hmm. that explodes out of her, uh, which is really fun. <laughs> and we work together in such physical ways that it it uh, it feels necessary, necessary. Now you said this was a play written, you know, not by you, which is Correct. which is a no. There's not a lot of a lot of people doing one people one woman shows or one man shows or whatever. Mm -hmm. Are doing shows that they have written themselves. Yes. Was the playwright involved in this process with you guys? He yeah. was, and, and remains. Peter Peter is a great collaborator, um, and you know Peter, his text it's so poetic. You know, and he when he he started he, when he talks about this project, he said he started thinking about this project first as a novel, and started it and and really wrote this out in prose, but then really got inspired by experience in this woman being on the edge of this extreme and it lent itself to this more poetic heightened language and so this came the play version came out in as a poem for him and um, you met Peter I met Peter at a, at a party and uh, he was writing plays and I said you know if you have some if you have a play you want to send to me I'd mm -hmm. love to read it I could use it with my students you know mm -hmm. and, and then I just said this crazy idea you know and if you had a play for one woman in her middle age, that would be uh, great. And he looked at me and said, I'll send it to you tonight. <laughs> and I, I was stunned because... Uh, now, is he the type I, of playwright who's like, 
I have no play, but I will go no. home in the next two no, hours, right? No, he's not that play. <laughs> but it, it had just been um, pub, uh, published. published in the Kenyan okay. Review, which is a literary okay. um, uh, magazine, uh, quite a prestigious liter- literary magazine. And and uh, he said, you know, I don't, I don't know if it can really be done. It's Kind of impossible to do, and, and I said, "Well, I specialize in the impossible." You're so, making the impossible possible. So, Liz, yeah, Liz Danton, yes. So <laughs> you know, I and he did. The, here's the thing: he sent it to me that night, as promised. I read the first few pages, and I just fell in love with the script. So it felt like, you know, ask and you yeah. shall receive a little bit like that. Like I, I really thought I was asking an impossible thing. Asking this playwright to have written yeah. a play for one woman, and then he had one, and it feels to be a really great fit. But this goes to the thing, you know, in business and you know, in handling your business in theater, like yeah. you know, what I, what you know, is our program at University of Providence. It's not just about the numbers. It's sometimes as simple as that. Just knowing and being willing. And asking for what you're looking for, you know, I think that's one of the biggest things as an artist. I think that's one of the reasons we've had so much success together as collaborators as a project on projects. It's like, I don't know. Well, let's ask a question about that. Do you you know anything about this? Let's bring you in. Let's let's try something. Let's work on this. And to be able to articulate the question sometimes is the, the hardest bit of the work. You know, and then getting up the courage then to ask it to the, to the right yeah. people, yeah, you I mean, know, but that's, you know, so key to being a, a you know, quote unquote, successful artist, you know, in many ways. Is, I mean, we can be so afraid to put our desires out there. Right. That, Thank you. And, that and, is, and I know it. I've been sitting on a play that I've wanted to pitch to somebody and I actually know him and I could probably, uh-huh. I could have probably sent it to him two years ago. Right. But even when I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I have no idea what's going to you yeah. know, happen. Like, yeah. But I am pitching it to him in person, but it is, it's like. I can ask, and but it's it's, it's scary too. So it I mean, I'm not going to you know tell my students that what I'm saying is easy. No, it's but, not oh. easy. And, and I, when I have to say, like I uh, I had in my mind that I wanted to do a show in the United Solo Theater Festival. This was a couple of years ago, and but I knew also that I didn't want to write the play. Yeah. I wanted to find a play, and then this came about. So it's it does feel meant to be. And then you know I think. It, Liz was also really bold as an artist and saying like, oh, I, I can do the impossible. That's really what I do, you know, and then meaning like we often take ideas, theatrical ideas and make them real. We take a dream and make it a reality. Um, that's that's the work that we're engaged in. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and Peter, um, I think, was looking for that, too. He he didn't know how this play would be produced. There, there, it, there's, there's some particular production questions that were mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't know if anyone's really going to take that on. How do you do that? Uh, and so, but he really trusted us to like, Take it and run, and we were in communication with him leading up to its premiere um, in the Solo Festival, United Solo Festival in 2014, and lots of emails back and forth. But he was an amazing collaborator, and we would have, you know, we didn't actually really know how long the play was at first because it's in poetry, right? And then we added all this physicality and all this music and theatrical language, and suddenly what looked to be a short play on paper is a long play, and it was actually longer than what we had available to us. So we had to do this huge cut right before we, we premiered it, and 
you know, I was really nervous about taking this to the playwright, right? Like, I don't know him that well. Why has like, 75 oh minutes become like the de facto for solo plays? Well, it this we of, only had a 60-minute slot. We had a 60-minute oh, yeah. slot. We didn't so 60 minutes. We needed, well, yeah, I mean, we needed long, but, yeah. 20 minutes. Don't you really, 75 minutes it's has true. kind of turned into this? It has become, it's a really, I think it's a really popular, um, it's, you know, it's more than an hour, less than an hour and a half, <laughs> right? It's like, if you're going to sit there without an intermission, I think that's really what our, our a lot of contemporary um, audience yeah. attention spans are, you know, mm-hmm. that 75 yeah. minute. It's like mm-hmm. two episodes, right? <laughs> An episode and a half. Binge <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it is very popular, though, that, that 75 minute. I enjoy it. I know, you know, I went to see I a play the other night. I think it's a great length. And yeah. they, they, in, in advance, they said it's going to be over, it's going to be about three hours, and I panicked a little bit, but <laughs> it was really amazing. I was really glad <laughs> that it was three hours. But I'm so habituated yeah. to, like, the 75, my expectation for performance now is, like, yeah. 75 minutes to half hour. Hour and a half, half. yeah. 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, before we get to talking about Convergence a little uh-huh. bit, what, what are both of your work outside of Convergence as, as well? And then we'll head into, because then we'll converge. Oh, then we'll converge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I, I'm a teacher. I, I teach acting. Okay. And I, also, I teach acting at NYU in okay. the Experimental Theater Wing. Uh, and I also teach at the New York Film Academy. Okay. And I teach uh, voice and movement. I teach Meisner mm-hmm. at voice at uh, New York Film Academy, and I teach first year acting <laughs> at NYU. Yeah, well, I'll probably have a couple of extra side note questions <laughs> for you at the end of this, based sure. on your experience as an educator. Sure, no problem. <laughs> and CTC keeps me pretty busy these days <laughs> with all of our different projects, but I also um, I get to, I have this really great uh, gig right now with the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation. I run a, a program through their Performing Arts Division called Building Demand for the Arts which is a national grant program that's asking questions around how can we build demand for the performing arts through authentic relationships with communities and being, as artists and arts organizations, how can we be good civic partners and neighbors and not only offer high-quality, amazing work, but offer uh, the creative process and really open our doors and use art and the art process to uh, uh, meet other people and to engage in our cities in different ways and certainly to be more actively involved in conversations and, and find different ways that, that art can be, uh, the performing arts can be more present in our daily lives and not just be some special thing that you go to yeah. that only some people have either yeah. access to or they're even the right to see. That really looking at um, kind of decentralizing the power uh, systems and structures around who has access to art. All right. Well, Liz Stanton, mm-hmm. Jeremy yes. Williams. Thanks so much. The woman mm-hmm. was me. Uh, Convergence Theater Collective. (laughs) Thank Thank you guys so much for stopping by and a lot of fascinating conversation. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much. It's been great. It's been great. Thanks so much. Listening Room. As promised, we have another song from Sam Carner and Derek Greger. This is from their debut CD, Carner and Greger 1. And this song is called Stay a While, sung by Jeremy Jordan. Kind of nice to know people like that to sing on your songs, isn't What's it? What's your hurry, pretty girl? It's perfect here. So stay a while. The sun there had some nerve to wake you. You should stick to the skies. Don't worry, close your eyes And stay a while It's only seven 
A few more minutes in this bed A desert isle Above the covers It's much too cold to stay wild What's your rush? Stay in my arms Today the train will wait for you And on the other side your boss Will be late to work, I promise No need just yet to rise Don't worry, close your eyes And stay a while It's only seven A few more minutes will send time to exile while it's still perfect right here they say passion fades and seem to think that that's okay that there's a deeper love once the fire goes away but no i can't lose this don't forget this just let this It's only seven, a few more minutes. My arms are open, you're free to go. I know you need to, and that's all right. Okay, I'll free you. Okay, I'll see you. Stay a while by Carner and Gregor, sung by Jeremy Jordan. And uh, I don't know if that song's available, but again, they have tons of sheet music available for auditions at newmusicaltheater.com. They have one song. Uh, I didn't couldn't find an actual recording, but you can find a lot on YouTube. It's called "What Do You Do with Your Hands?" Hysterical. Uh, our cabaret troupe, a girl, did it a couple years ago, and it was very well received. Anyway, check them out. You'll be hearing a lot more from them in the future. I guarantee it. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up Volume 803. I hope you enjoyed those things. If you liked anybody you heard, again, we've got the unedited interviews available at broadwaybullet.com. A lot more fascinating stuff from everybody we talked to. Our next episode will be coming out August 29th. That's a week later than initially planned for 8.04. But then we'll be back on schedule for the rest. And I have figured out, I think, a way to keep on track with everything I got going on. So hopefully we shouldn't be seeing any more delays after this. (laughs) Knock on wood. Anyway, again, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. Um, Anybody looking, we've got a link on our website, Broadway Bullet, about uh, the classes in our program, Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence, formerly University of Great Falls. And uh, hope to see some of you there at school. Hope to hear all of you back listening to this program in two weeks. Thanks. And again, I would like to give a special thanks to our sponsors. Once again, the uh, Dramatist Guild Fund, 
great organization. Uh, really encourage you to take advantage of the services they offer and to become a member and contribute to those services they offer and the University of Providence because uh, right now they're paying for all my travel and being able to do this podcast for everybody. All right. Thank you. Thank you.